I am your host, Raquel Ark, an American podcasting from Germany, and this is Listen In. Join this series of conversations with inspiring scientists, leaders, and authors about listening as a surprising superpower that is not always as easy as it seems. Believe me, I know, and I've been learning and will continue to learn, and I hope that this podcast will help you find practical ways to help others listen better while you become better at leading people, catalyzing collaboration, transforming conflict, building trust and engagement. And I'll tell you, when really good listening happens, then the entire group, including you, can feel energized and inspired. So sit back and enjoy listening beyond what we typically think of. Imagine what could be possible if you would learn how to listen to your creativity. Enjoy this episode with author and speaker Robbie Bach who is best known for founding and leading the team that created the Xbox. And as Microsoft's president of the entertainment and devices division, responsible for the company's worldwide gaming, music, video, phone, and retail sales businesses. He shares how listening to his creativity has not only helped him build collaborative teams, it has also played a huge role in writing his new novel, The Wilkes Insurrection, which will be launched October 12th. Besides speaking to audiences on leadership, creativity, strategy, and civic issues, Robbie currently chairs the board of the Bipartisan Policy Center. He also serves on the National Board of Governors for Boys and Girls Clubs of America and Magic Leap, an augmented reality company. Enjoy this conversation about listening to creativity. Welcome, Robbie, to the Listen In Podcast. It's great to have you here with me today. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. So we have enjoyed conversations in the past about leadership and listening, but today's conversation is taking us into maybe some new territory, not only for for our conversations, but also for you. And that is, we're going to talk a little bit about listening to creativity. Before we get into this conversation about that, there's always a question I ask all the people who are on this podcast, and that is when you think about listening, whether it worked or it didn't, what's the first moment that you really started to notice the power of listening? It's a strange story, Raquel. I went to business school. One of the classes we had had an exercise you had to do that was about listening. And the exercise is basically sit with somebody in a room and we literally sat, uh, we were supposed to sit about a meter apart, which wouldn't work in COVID days, but worked back then. So we're literally sitting on two little chairs about a meter apart and each person is supposed to talk about something deeply emotional and meaningful to them. And the other person is supposed to listen and give them feedback cues without saying anything for a full minute. Now, you think about that, you say, well, that's easy. Oh my, it is unbelievably hard. And so I had a, a close friend, somebody who's still a friend. We sat down and she talked about something that was very emotive for her. And I had to sit for a minute, listen, give her nonverbal cues that I was listening intently and that I was encouraging her on and, and providing feedback. It's just a completely different form of communication. And, you know, I won't say that I I walked away from that experience saying, oh, now I get it. I know exactly how to do it. 
but I did walk away with a deep appreciation for what it meant to communicate without speaking. And I think that's powerful. Yeah. And I was just thinking about your comment that it was much harder than you expected. We think that one minute of doing that is very easy, no big deal. But I hear that often, that these minutes where we can't say anything <laughs> well, it, are it's hard. Es- <laughs> it's especially difficult for people, and I put myself in this category, and probably you would put yourself in this category, who think of themselves as leaders, think of themselves as thoughtful people, think of themselves as people of ideas. And you know, the minute somebody is two sentences into a thought, three things are in my head that I want to talk about. And that's the way I, it's sort of my native, my native form of communication, which, you know, is fine when there's a break in the action, but that's challenging and figuring out how to listen completely and not just pretend you're listening, but actually hear what the person is saying, understand it, process it and continue to process it before you respond. That actually takes real work. Yeah. So now fast forward today, right? And you probably have also, you know, more awareness about listening. And recently, you have been listening to your creativity. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, about five years ago, I decided to write a second book. My first book was a nonfiction, you know, the traditional business, and in my case, civic strategy book. But I decided to write a second book. And I wanted to challenge myself. I didn't want to write a second business book. I felt like I could do that and probably do it successfully and better than the first one. But I said, no, let's do something really challenging. So I decided to write fiction. And writing fiction required a whole new set of skills, certainly a new set of writing skills, but also a new sense of what I'll call emotional skills and creative skills. How do you conjure a character out of thin air? In fact, how do you conjure 20 characters out of thin air? How do you create characters who have traits similar to yours? How do you create characters who have traits that are nothing like yours? How do you describe a scene in a rich way where somebody who is reading the words paints a visual picture in front of them? How do you create dialogue that isn't stilted and formal and that when you actually verbalize it, sounds like dialogue? So this was a whole new challenge for me. And it was certainly a challenge for my writing skills, but it was also a challenge for my creativity skills. And it was a challenge for me to listen, to use the word, to a different part of myself and a different part of my brain and a part of my brain that was not about strategy and marketing and communications messaging and those types of things, but was instead about this creative story, which turns out to be a, an action thriller. So that's all the, a whole new thing for me. So when you first thought, okay, I'm going to write this fiction. And so you start digging into how does this work? You know, you probably had your strategy hat on at that time when you decided, made this decision. And then something shifted to listening to this other part of yourself, this other part of your brain. Was that a journey? Or do you remember a moment where you're like, oh, wait, there's something else here that I didn't realize or something else that's important for me to get in touch with for me to do this? The secret to starting to create this book, which is now called The Wilkes Insurrection, the secret for this was that I didn't start with a plot. I didn't start with an idea. I didn't start thinking, oh, this is going to be an action thriller. Instead, what I started with was characters. And there had been some characters running around in my head. 
you know, I, I do a lot of thinking when I walk. I take my dog on regular walks and we'll go for three or four miles. And sometimes I listen to music, but a lot of times I'm just thinking. And these characters, for whatever reason, have been running around in my head, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And so I got started not by writing a novel and not by outlining a plot or going to a writer's camp, which is probably what I should have done. Instead, I got started by writing these little vignettes, little character vignettes that were two or three chapters about each character. I ended up writing almost 100 pages that had nothing to do with a specific plot, but just characters acting in their daily lives and what was going on in their life at, quote unquote, the beginning of this story. And from that started to shape a plot. From that came how those characters would interact. And to do that effectively, you actually have to listen to a different part of your brain. And you don't completely turn off the the logical strategy part of your brain, but you has to have to listen to the emotive part of your brain, to the creative part of your brain, and just let the words come out. And that was a new experience for me. So you did a lot of this thinking in terms of these characters, these character development while you were doing your taking your walk. So on your own, so taking time to really listen to what's going on in your mind. Did you also need other people around to also develop those characters, people to talk it out with? Yeah. So, you know, creativity is not a, a solo act. So I had a couple of different forms of of interaction to help me. I have a, a friend who happens to be an author. She's worked with me in helping me develop my speaking skills. She was a speechwriter for me when I worked at Microsoft. And she would join me occasionally for walks. And we would talk about these characters and what they were doing. And she would reflect on them and how they might interact. We would bat ideas back and forth with each other. Now, you know, in the end of the day, did I take 100% of those ideas? No, in fact, I probably didn't take 50 or or 20% of those ideas. But there were a few nuggets and then a few breadcrumbs. And those nuggets and breadcrumbs led to whole new ideas. And there's one central idea in my in the Wilkes insurrection called the Lincoln Coalition, which isn't giving away any plot, but the Lincoln Coalition is an idea that literally came up on one of our walks. And we weren't even discussing the book. We were just talking about some other work that I do. And she said the words Lincoln Coalition. And I said, oh, that's amazing. And that ended so up there was just a, a spark and a connection in that very moment. Exactly. And again, out of context, in that particular case, we weren't even talking about the book. We were just talking about life and some other things that were going on and some of the craziness that's going on in, in the United States. And she said those words and I said, oh, it's, it's those moments where, you know, there's a, there's a creative spark. I've had this happen to me on my walk. I'll be sitting there listening to some music and I'll be walking with the dog and I'll suddenly go, oh, Tamika Smith should it should meet that person there. And to me, because the main character of my book and, and I'm like, Oh, if that happens, think about all the other things that opens up. Wow. And you know, I can't explain to you where that comes from, but I know that I know that you have to be able to listen to yourself and to listen to what's going on inside your head, which is a weird process. It's not natural, honestly, but very powerful. Yeah, you know, sometimes I think, you know, we're afraid to listen because we might think we're crazy, which we may be, but it may be okay and normal. <laughs> and maybe yeah, it's, it's good to uh, tap into that craziness. <laughs> it is. And, you know, sometimes I, you and I have talked about listening and how to listen to others. And, 
you know, sometimes I think, okay, well, I have to listen to myself. And that to me is a powerful, is a powerful concept. How do I listen to myself? Sounds kind of egocentric, I suppose. But in fact, there's things running around in my head that I don't even know that are there. And that's a powerful lesson to learn. Yeah. And that also is connected to our creativity, right? And so that's part of, you know, to think about how that piece can help create something, something new, like you've just done with this book, right? Maybe those voices were doing work even before when you were working at Microsoft and you didn't realize it as much. <laughs> I'm sure that's the case. I know that what I've, you know, I worked at Microsoft for, for 22 years, you know, it was a, like all careers up and down highs and lows, et cetera, but it was a great 22 years, but I've learned more about listening, more about mentoring, more about what it means to lead since I've left. And the reason for that isn't because I didn't learn a lot at Microsoft. I did. But when I left, I stopped doing. And when you can sort of take your hands off the keyboard, so to speak, and actually process things and engage in a mentor relationship with somebody else and think in your head, oh, what does that actually mean? New ideas come. And you realize things that I did professionally that were sometimes right, sometimes wrong, but I now consciously realized I did them. And I've been able to sort of put them in a framework about leadership and mentorship and those types of things. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to get back to that in just a moment. But before I do, I have one more question relating, or maybe another question about relating to your book. So your creative process was started with characters. And you said that you'd had these characters walking around or moving around or developing over the last 10 to 15 years. That's a long time. And you had no idea that this book would turn into a thriller, for example. Mm. You had no idea what these characters wanted to do. You know, <laughs> you, only, you had more of a feeling of who they were, right? The being part, right. it seemed like. Right. Yeah. So as you made the decision to, to try to see if you could do a fiction book, how did it turn into a thriller? So that's a, <laughs> that is a fascinating question. It turned into a thriller because, because I have fears. I know that's going to sound strange, but it turned into a thriller, I suppose, ultimately because I have fears. So one of my fears is a fear of flying, and which is crazy because I fl I've flown millions of miles in my professional and personal life. I fly all over the place, but I don't like doing it. And so one of my characters, who actually isn't that much like me, generally speaking, but right at the beginning, I wrote about this character, I have a fear of flying, and I wrote about him getting on a plane. And I decided to write out of my fear. I decided to write about what would happen if there was an accident on that plane and it crashed. And so right at the very beginning of the book, so this isn't giving away much of the plot because you're going to read this very, like in chapter one of the book, my, one of my characters, Johnny Humboldt, describes getting on the plane, talks about how he quells his fear of flying, gets on the plane, and the plane crashes. And I describe that crash from his first person experience while on the plane. And, you know, so for me, in some ways, that was an emotional release. It's a chance to express my fear and a chance to let it go in a context that's super safe. So then when I, when I finished that whole sequence, and then I went on to write a few more characters and I came back and I said, okay, well, let's ask the fundamental question. Why did the plane crash? And at that point I said, oh, well, it crashed because there was a bomb on it. Now well, the book is a thriller. And now the characters, the other characters that have been running around in my head 
suddenly start to make sense because one of those characters is a woman named Tamika Smith. She's a search and rescue specialist at an Air Force base in, in Omaha, Nebraska, off at Air Force Base. The plane crashes there. She rescues the people from there, and she's left to try to help pick up the pieces of why this happened. And then, of course, so now I've written all these characters. I've written, I don't know, at this stage, probably 150 pages of the book. And I say, okay, I have to do two different things. One, I need an antagonist. There's no bad person in this book yet, and I haven't written a bad person yet, so I got to start from scratch on that. And I have to have something right at the very beginning of the book that provides intrigue that you don't know what's going to happen next. And so I wrote a prologue that is a scene from later in the story. So I wrote this whole prologue. I don't know. It's only two or three pages. But it's a scene that's going to take place later in the plot that teases so many things and that sort of draws the reader in. I wrote that scene without knowing how the rest of the plot was going to get there. So now the book is in the following stage. I have these character arcs that have been written. I've got a hundred and some pages about these three or four characters. I've started this. I've decided that it's going to be a thriller. There's been an, a bomb that's exploded on this plane. The plane's crashed last, crash landed. Some people have been rescued. My protagonist is, is part of that rescue. And I have this scene that's going to take place way down in the future that involves my, my antagonist, the person who's the evil person in the book. And I have to get there. And so, so you don't even know how you're going to get there yet. So this is almost no. like you're discovering the story as it happens. Exactly. And, you know, look, I'm sure at some writing camp someplace in the United States, there's a person rolling over in their bed saying, oh, don't do it that way. So I'm positive this isn't the way to do it. But what, I, what I've discovered, I've gone and talked to a lot of authors. And I haven't talked to a single one who uses the same process for writing their book. And Everybody so has this their is, way. Yeah. You have to have your way. And this was my way. And, and so now the rest of the process of writing the book is about trying to get to that scene and listening to the ideas in my head that are going to enable my characters to get there. So by the time you finished there, when, once you got there and you finished your book and you, I guess, typed the last letter, even though I'm sure mm. there was editing after, but you know, basically where you felt like, okay, <laughs> not to give anything away of the book, but looking back at the process, what surprised you the most? I think what surprised me the most, this is an author's confession. When I finished, finished, quote unquote, the first full draft of the book, the book was 175,000 words, which doesn't mean anything to anybody. That's 550 words in Microsoft, uh, 550 pages in Microsoft Word. So far too long. And the reason it was far too long is that part of my character sketches were the backgrounds, the backstory for every character. And they were all in the book. And what I discovered as I went back to reshape the book, the final version of the book, it went from 175,000 words to 107,000 words, if you can believe that. And the final version of the book has the hints and clues to all of those backstories. But you find ways in one sentence to write what it took you four pages to think through. Right. It's moving out of your thought process to the, to the words or to the story or, you yeah. know, it's the, well, it's, yeah. it's the author's art. And I was, I was learning it as I went. And so the author's art is how do I write one perfect sentence that tells the reader what they need to know about who this person is and where they came from and what their background is. And, you know, you try to write that one sentence. And for me, I had a chapter that described that. And so I had to, you know, you go through the chapter and say, okay, how do I write one sentence that tells this? 
And, you know, in a couple of cases, there still are backstories in the, in the book, for sure. There's a couple of things that happened to a few of my characters that are just too emotive and too critical, and I need to tell those stories. In a large number of cases, there's, there'll be a sentence or two that replaced, you know, a whole chapter. You know, I was just thinking about this process of writing the book, of how you've done this. If you, if you take your, the way that you worked through this new challenge and what came out of it, and you're to look back at the way that you used to lead teams and groups or new ideas. Do you see some commonalities? Oh, for sure. Look, people ask me the question. People ask me the question. So are you in the book? Which character is you? And the answer I give to people is, well, no, I'm not in the book. None of these characters are me, thankfully. And But instead, what you find is little pieces of me dribbled out across the plot and across the character set and, you know, sort of small indicators of me. One of my characters is Johnny Humboldt. You meet Johnny Humboldt in the first chapter, as I said, and Johnny is a business person. And so there are a few business characteristics that are drawn from my life that are embodied in Johnny. Now, Johnny and I are completely different people, as I said before, but he has some attributes that are, that are similar to me. And so, yes, you see those things sprinkled throughout the book, both the good and the bad, by the way, the things I learned because I did it the wrong way. And my characters do that too. And, and it's not just things I learned from myself. It's things that I saw in other people. And you try to draw lessons from that. And there's no way I could have done this while I was working because I, I could never have been this intentional. But now that I'm not working at Microsoft and I'm working full-time as a writer and a speaker and a consultant, I can take the time to sort of piece those strings together. Yeah. And so when you think about this, where you're at right now, the space that you have to do some of, you know, what you even said, I think, at the beginning of our conversation, that, that once you stopped doing, you know, just to take a step back, then you've learned a lot more even about leadership and or listening. Create, now you have this creative side that's coming out. If you were to give some, some advice or some tips or so, something to think about to younger professionals who are in the tech world or just in general, what would be some, what would you share with them now that you maybe didn't think about before? I think the biggest thing I would share is this concept of self-awareness and really as best you can trying to understand who you are as a person, you know, and I'm, I'm now 59 years old. It took me yeah, 58 years to figure that out. And I'm still learning that I haven't stopped. But you start in your professional career, you go to school, you get trained, you get a job, you start doing the work, you start learning a, a trade or a skill or a particular functional area. And your brain is just processing and you're doing. But I think you would be incredibly more valuable as a as a worker, as a friend, as a as a leader if you actually understood yourself better and if you could sit down and do sort of the 360 self analysis you know they a lot of companies offer this process where you go through a 360 and you get feedback from your managers you get feedback from your coworkers you get feedback from the people who work for you and then some a professional actually puts that together and shares it with you and i think if you could do that that process is wonderful by the way but if you could also just do that mentally yourself I think it's very, very powerful. Now, the hard part is you got to be honest with yourself. <laughs> that is hard. <laughs> <laughs> I 
And that's, you can't create a self-awareness of who you want to be. You have to create a self-awareness of who you are. And that to me is, is super difficult. I describe when I talk about this with people, I describe this as my Avengers theory of leadership. And I don't know whether you and I have talked about this in the past. No, but I don't think you've that. told me about this. Tell me. Yeah. So, so the Avengers theory of leadership is the following. If you are, if you know the the comic book, if you're an old person like me, or you know the movies, if you're a younger person, you know that each of the Avengers has a superpower. You know, Iron Man is turns out to be really smart. Hulk is really strong and powerful. Hawkeye, you know, does triple backflips and can fire an arrow and have it explode at the right spot and do the right thing. You know, somebody is stealthy. So, you know, each of them has their own sort of superpower. And for us, it's really incumbent as leaders and as people to understand what are our superpowers and be honest with ourselves. What are you truly great at? And for some people, that's that's easy to say, oh, I'm great at this. But for most people, it's, hey, I'm great at a lot of things. And, and that's not a superpower. Superpower is the thing that you are uniquely talented at. And then, and I'm going to mix comic universes here, which is really a crime, but I'm going to mix Marvel with DC Comics. In addition to knowing your superpowers, your Avengers superpower, you have to know your kryptonite. And you have to know the things that you are uniquely bad at. And, you know, figuring that out should be easy because weaknesses get exposed. But people, it goes back to the self-awareness point, being self-aware enough to say, oh, yeah, I'm really not good at that. And either work at it or surround yourself. And this is where we come back to the full Avengers theory, which is, you know, a great leader isn't somebody who has 10 superpowers. A great leader is somebody who knows their superpowers and who surrounds themselves with other people who have superpowers. And collectively, that group is an Avengers class group of people that forms a team that can get amazing things done. Yeah. So uh, when you think about your superpower, you know, for you, can you give me, tell me what your superpower is yeah. and give me an example of that being, you know, putting that superpower into play with all your kryptonites? So I think, you know, the primary superpower I have is the ability to communicate and collaborate with people from a lot of different points of view. I am... You know, Microsoft was sort of an IQ test place. You know, smartest person in the room yelled the loudest and their idea got done. And I can be loud, that I was good at, but I wasn't the smartest person in the room. But I could take ideas from two or three different people and pull them together in a, I'll use the word creative, but just pull them together in a way that made something new. And I could then communicate with other people about that idea. And and help sort of evangelize it and turn it into something. Now, in the world I lived in, I was the founding chief Xbox officer. We were building a crazy business at Microsoft for in Xbox in the video game space. And I was not the smartest person who knew how to pick the, the right chipset for the, for the console. I wasn't the person who uh, understood what made a great game. But when it came time to take our strategy and to collaborate with partners in the ecosystem, and to build strong partnerships with those people and encourage them and, and enable them to help support us and to put their games on our platform, those kinds of things. I was actually really good at that. And so I had to learn over the first two or three years that I should spend less time trying to make technical decisions and more time enabling myself to work with the ecosystem and make that ecosystem powerful and then allow other people on the team who really were good technically and did understand the properties of a, of a chipset and, and how to select it and let them go make those decisions themselves. 
Yeah. I read the article that you had on LinkedIn about your creative, about uh, your creative spark and your confession that you have not had technical training and never even wrote a line of code. And yet here, (laughs) here you were, (laughs) you know, leading the Xbox business. Yeah, you know, of course, I spent 22 years at Microsoft, so I picked up a thing or two about technology along the way. So it's not that I'm not a tech-savvy person, but in the context of a business that is making these incredibly complicated choices about which technology path to go down, I was just ill-equipped to do it well. And there were other people on the team who I swear could see around technical corners. And they could make a decision about the future of some set of tech or the future direction of some specific technology. And I'd go, really? That's what's going to happen? And then three years later, it would. And you, you, when you find those people, that is a superpower. That is a Black Widow-like superpower where suddenly you, she's not there and then suddenly she is. And that kind of superpower to me, you have to figure out how to latch onto. Now, it turns out those people are hard to manage. So that was another challenge for me. But if you can manage them successfully, if you can integrate them into the team to do this collaboration work, which I considered my superpower, you can drive some amazing results. And you know, ultimately, the first version of Xbox was a tough road, really hard, and had some high points and some low points. The second version of Xbox was, was a huge success. And it's because... I learned along the way and the team learned along the way and we got better at applying our talents. And to go back to the original analogy, we became a little bit more of the Xbox Avengers team and a little less of the individuals who were good at what we did. You also mentioned that, you know, right now, you know, you've kind of tapped into, you've had this leadership role and, and you still have a leadership role. And that past year, you know, tapping into this creative side of your, you've become much more aware of even maybe how this creative part that was actually in you even before, how that might have played out even in the role that you used to play. Maybe that that was maybe use your creativity also in this collaboration work on how you brought people together, right? But through this awareness of this past year that that you're I think the phrase you used was that you're mining this new creativity to drive change and inspire others. So I'd like to understand more what is it that you're mining? What type of change are you trying to drive and how are you trying to trying to inspire people? Well, I think, you know, for me, and I'll say this without making it a, a political statement, because it's not meant to be a political statement. Our communities, I can speak from an, an American perspective here, our communities have some real challenges in front of them. And that's painful for me. I'm really proud of a lot of what it means to to be an American growing up here and and what I think of our country. And yet our country has some incredibly deep, challenging problems. And so for me, you know, my purpose in life now, I'm a big believer in this concept of purpose. My purpose in life post-Microsoft has been to enable and empower an army of civic engineers. So how do you enable and empower people to be engaged civically in a productive, constructive way. And right now, there's not enough of that productive, constructive engagement going on. And how do you do that in a way where people listen, they hear what others have to say, and then they collaborate on, okay, well, how do we shape that into a solution that works for the vast majority of people? And solutions require choices. They don't work for everyone. But we can make choices that work for, for a large percentage of people. 
Mm-hmm. And I w- yeah, I was just yeah, thinking about what you what you said with the teams that in terms of your collaboration gift, where you were able to bring, you know, beforehand the loudest person would get their ideas in there, and basically part of your role was to listen to bring in a f- two or three of these and to create something to help bring people together to move forward in perhaps a new way. And when you're saying saying that, it reminds me of of that. Well, yeah, there's there's definitely in our communities in our country way too much noise. And the noise is distracting. It's disturbing. It makes it hard for people to think. It makes it hard for people to be rational. It makes it hard for people to be collaborative. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm not a, a fan or a, a negative person about technology generally. So things like social media have an immense power. Right? What would I do without Instagram and the ability to see my granddaughter every day? Okay, well, there's immense power in social media, but there's also a, immense distraction in it as well. And, you know, so the noise that's been created in our lives makes it hard for people to step back and say, no, okay, I'm actually going to listen to that person. I'm going to try to understand it. We're going to have a conversation. We're going to try to be productive about it. It's super difficult. And of course, all of this, because in, in my creative work I'm doing, all of this plays out in the context of the plot for the Wilkes Interaction. And so you can imagine, think of it this way. You know, I wrote a nonfiction book about Uh, leadership and strategy. I'm writing a fiction book that, you know, at one level is about heroic and evil ambition. I would say that for sure. But at another level is about the same themes that ran through some of the the nonfiction work that I do. And the, the art as an author is to have the person realize that after they've finished the book. This is a realization that you had after the fact. Well, actually, this is something that was intentional as an author. My goal was to write a fiction book that was powerful, great fiction, and that when the reader put it down, they realized they'd learned something. And they hadn't just read a a great story that engaged them or whatever, but they actually walked away saying, oh, I should think about that differently. And, you know, doing that in fiction, doing that in the thriller genre was was a wonderful challenge. If you were to share something practical, like a little a tool or something with our audience about that would help them to listen, or maybe even, some, even around their creativity, what would be something that might be interesting for our audience to try out? So I've, in particular, as COVID started and we went into isolation, that was actually challenging for me. You know, if you're a collaborative person who likes to interact with people, you know, sitting in my little office with my dog Roscoe and with nobody else to talk to wasn't a, wasn't a great experience. And so I talked to some people who I looked to for advice and I talked to them about the nervousness and the anxiety that was starting to sort of seep into my, into my life. And they made a suggestion, which I, I did. And I've, I've lived pretty well to it. I'm not living as well to it today as I, as I was during the, the first 12 months, but I'm trying to get back to it which is to say this, at the beginning of the day, dedicate 10 or 15 minutes, check out the news, you know, look at your social media, whatever it is you want to do, and then put it away for the rest of the day. And let the rest of the day happen in real time in front of you without the noise and without the distractions and with the sort of authenticity of, of a real experience. And, you know, you repeat that three or four days and you discover that you can keep up on what's going on without having to take over what you're doing. 
and you can step away from the screen for a moment and have more real experiences. And, and even do it, you weird, you say, well, Robbie, how did you have real experiences in COVID? And the truth is we did, you know, we, I went on walks. We had six people living with us here. We went on walks together. We did things at night. We played games, you know, I was on zoom a lot. So that was a real experience. And I left a lot of the noise behind and that was good for my productivity, but also good for my sanity. Do you think that being able to let go of that noise also helped you to be able to be, to get this book done, to be intentional with this? Oh, no question. No question. At that stage, the thankfully at that stage, a, a meaningful portion of the writing, I'd say close to all of the main writing was done, but editing is actually really difficult. And even in the editing process, there's new things that have to be created and you have to dig in and you have to say, okay, I've read this book 22 times. I'm going to go through and edit, edit it 23rd time. And I'm going to look for different things this time and I'm going to do that. And so you have to have a clear head to be able to do that. In the end of the day, on in this final editing phase of the Wilkes Insurrection, I had to make some choices about some things that I hadn't finally settled on in my mind. Choices around character, plot, things to leave out of the book, things that were required to be included. And you got to have a, a clear head to be able to do that. And, uh, you know, hopefully people will read the book. Hopefully the, I did a good job in those final edits. Cause I think it's that final polishing that takes something that is good and, and hopefully makes it great. Well, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. When does it come out? <laughs> yeah, so I'm a little the, scared. It's a thriller, you know, but. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the book comes out on October 12th. You can pre-order it already. So it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and the indie books sites already. If you go to wilksinsurrection.com, you can see a video trailer of the story. My characters all have playlists. So there are Spotify playlists for each of my characters, as well as a Spotify playlist for the entire book. And so there's, a, there's plenty of information there, and you can pre-order it there. It comes out on October 12th. And, and I, I really hope people just enjoy it as a book. And then when you're done and put it down, you say, oh, huh, maybe, maybe I learned something. <laughs> well, I'll let you know. <laughs> yes, I, I expect. Well, I know you will provide me with clear feedback. I'm not concerned about that at all. No, this, this is really great. And thank you so much for this conversation. Before we close this out, is there anything else that you would like to share with listeners, whether it's about your book, creativity, leadership, or anything else that maybe haven't asked yet? <laughs> I think the only thing I, the only thing I would, would close for people is we struggle right now, I think collectively, and this is, you know, I live in the United States, I'm American, but I think this is true around the world. We struggle collectively with thinking about ourselves as individuals and not thinking about ourselves as part of a community. I think if there's a lesson I am continually learning, it's that it's okay to think about myself as an individual and do things that are good for me. But in the end of the day, I have to think about what are what's good for the community as well. And is there a way for me to, so to speak, have my cake and eat it too and do something that's good for me, but something that's also good for the community and finding those unique opportunities, I think is powerful for people. Yeah, that's great. And that's, you know, that's at work, at home, at work and, you know, with our neighbors and our countries of the world, right? It's all phases. It's all yeah, phases. All phases. And it's, it's a thing that just, you know, you can't think about it every day, but just every once in a while, when you're, when you're taking that peace of mind with yourself, think, oh, yeah, I should do that. Well, thank you very much for this conversation. It's been great and uh, look forward to reading your book and appreciate um, all the insight that you gave to us about listening to creativity.
Thanks very much. Wonderful to, to be on with you. I am your host, Raquel Ark from Listening Alchemy, and I hope you are inspired by this episode of Listen In and find one person today to practice your listening superpower. Please subscribe and like this podcast and share it with others so we can catalyze a listening movement together. A big thank you to Evo Tiemann for producing the music and Cecilia Mercado for getting this podcast set up. Find more information at www.listeningalchemy.com. Enjoy listening in.